Hello once again, I'm Kevin Turner and welcome to this week's Realty Talk Show. A few weeks ago, property investors from around Australia and New Zealand gathered to swap ideas, to network and to listen to some very knowledgeable speakers as they shared their experiences at the inaugural PIPA conference. And one of those keynote speakers was previous property investment professionals of Australia, or as it's commonly known, PIPA, hit their chair. And he's also continuing board member, Peter Kaloutsos. He's also known as the property professor. And Peter took everyone at the conference on a property and location masterclass. Basically, I'm looking at houses rather than units. And the plan was that the, the median price of these houses would outperform the median price of their respective capital city. Yeah. And I used quantitative data, that's the numbers and the number crunching. And I also did a, a lot of quantitative research, which is really subjective or based on opinion. And I reckon the best research I did was actually being in the suburbs. Well, our very own Bushy Martin was the MC at that event and was so impressed with the information Peter went through that he invited Peter to join him in a full Realty Talk show. And today is the day. So get your notepaper out and get your pen out because you're going to hear some very powerful insights from Peter. Hey, if this is your first time with us, a big welcome. You're going to find us on all podcast players and through the Southern Cross Oz Stereo Network. Now, if you like the show, and we certainly hope that you do, make sure you hit the subscribe button. So we will be back in just a moment as Bushy kicks off this week's show. Successful property investment is a game of finance. Do you have the right team and the right game plan? Realty Talk is brought to you by Know How Property. More than mortgage brokers, Bushy Martin and his team of investment architects set you up with a sustainable strategy structured to lower your costs, tax, risk and stress while increasing your capacity for growth. Know-how has helped over 1,900 homeowners and investors secure more than $800 million in property wealth. So get set to live more, work less, and live your legacy. Want to know how to invest in your freedom? Visit knowhowproperty.com.au. This is Realty Talk, powered by realty.com.au. Now, we all know the old saying that you don't wait to buy real estate you buy real estate and wait. But how do you determine the best suburb to invest in? And what's the best type of property to buy? So who can give you the best independent, impartial and educated guidance on suburb selection? There's no one better than the previous PIPA Property Investment Professionals of Australia Chair and continuing board member, Peter Kalisos, to show you how to do this. Well, I guess to, to sort of start off, I just want to revisit your very highly acclaimed book, Top Australian Suburbs, as a basis to actually check the outcome of some of your previous forecasts versus the reality of what happened in those areas that you actually identified as up and coming suburbs. So to get things underway, can you tell us a bit more about your great book? Yeah, sure. So it was published 15 years ago, back in 2008. I picked 107 suburbs, 20 in the major capital cities, two suburbs in Canberra and Darwin, because they're quite small, and three suburbs in Hobart. So my starting point when I look at the performance of the capital growth is all based on March 2008. That's where we start from. Yep. And I made comparisons from March 2008 to December 2022, which is uh, just three months short of 15 years, which is 
quite a long period of time. I would imagine, you know, many property investors would have held property for that long. Probably most would have got rid of it by then. But I think it's important. One thing that I'm willing to do, Bushy, is all right. You know, I've been forecasting up-and-coming suburbs even before I wrote this book, even when I was teaching and before I wrote the book, so for 20 years. But I think it's important, especially as an educator, to make sure that I'm still on the right track. So I'm, I'm going back to, to see how good or bad those forecasts were. And, you know, I'm going to share that with you here. And some of the story is not so good, especially for those people that live in Perth, but we'll get to that soon. <laughs> um, but, you know, because, you know, I don't profess to know everything about property and things change. Things change over time. So, you know, what worked well in my father's day may not work so well now. So we need to keep on top of things so we can keep educating people as to uh, how to go forward so far as investing in property is concerned. Yeah, very well said. And and uh, as you would know better than I, uh, property predictions are dime a dozen, uh, yeah. but very few of them end up being accurate. And a lot of them, a lot of people who make them uh, show no accountability or responsibility <laughs> as they just conveniently forget the past and then have another go. But right. uh, I love the way you, you you stand by what you do and the and the the art and the science as you're about to reveal to us behind those uh, provides really good uh, reinforcement of, of why you've been so successful in that regard. So so just to sort of dive into that, then how were the top Australian suburbs selected, uh, Peter? So. Basically, I'm looking at houses rather than units. Yep. And the plan was that the, the median price of these houses would outperform the median price of their respective capital city. Yep. And I used quantitative data, that's the numbers and the number crunching, mainly from ABS and CourtLogic. And I also did a, a lot of quantitative research, which is really subjective or based on opinion. And I reckon the best research I did was actually being in the suburbs. So it took me one year and one day to write that uh, write that book because I, I travelled around the country, what to the mate to the capital cities, all the capital cities, and went to the suburbs that I wrote about. And even though, for example, they look really good on paper or on the computer on the desktop, when I got there, I, I saw now I can see why it's so cheap because cheap is not necessarily undervalued. So that was really good, you know, because in the book is, it also says areas to focus on and areas to avoid. And so to do that, you need to be able to walk the streets. And, and talk with people because uh, the local knowledge is so critical. That's that's where the word location comes from. It's local. So you really need to know not just the macro location, but the micro location, not just the, the city and the state, but the suburb and the street as well. So true, Matt. I, uh, I, I see a lot of people in the industry now who rely very heavily on the desktop data, but unless you've mixed it with the locals, because uh, it's the... It's the perception of an area and and the changes that are happening uh, that you just don't get to pick up on when you're doing a, a snapshot on the on the computer. So uh, now, brilliantly said. Uh, now, Peter, what do you consider to be the key capital growth drivers and why? Then, sure. So it's easy to remember them as the three L's: location, as you said before, is really important, the most important factor, land. And look, so if I can just quickly explain, so far as location is concerned, yep. you want to be close to the city or really close to the sea. Now, really close to the sea means like Esplanade or one or two streets back. Yep. Um, proximity to neighbouring prime suburbs. So often people want to move into that prime expensive suburb, can't afford to. They look next door and it, providing it has similar housing style and streetscape, 
there is good potential for it to benefit from that ripple effect. Other redeeming features, so far as location is concerned, include uh, being in the zone of a highly sought after high school. That's becoming more and more important all around the country. Yep. Uh, land, so that's the second L. But you need to remember that land appreciates in value and buildings depreciate in value. Therefore, houses generally generate better capital growth because they sit on more land yep. than units. Yep. And looks, it, it's two things. The look of the property generally means character or period style homes and the outlook, a view. So ideally, water is number one, a view of the CVD or views of open space in general. So location, land and looks and in that order as well. But uh, your insights are pretty timeless. I, I remember sitting in the audience at a Steve McNaught uh, conference back in the uh, early uh, noughties uh, yeah. when you were uh, presented exactly those things and they hold true as much today as they as they did then, mate. So uh, I, I think lo location and land has held true for ages, but I remember in my father's year, and I, and I mentioned my father from time to time because he was into property as well, which is how I got into property. Yep. Nobody really wanted what they called back then old houses, but now we call them character houses. And back then, nobody really was interested in being close to the beach because generally close to the beach was away from the city. They always wanted to be close to the city. Yep. But, you know, we had the sea change in the early noughties, right? That started the sea change. COVID has accelerated that. I think being close to the sea is going to become even more important as time goes on. Yeah, that excess of lifestyle is, uh, given that we're now uh, technology enabled and can pretty much operate from anywhere without having to be uh, in a office tower in the city, that, that's certainly uh, helping to change that complexion a bit. But uh, uh, sort of moving on from there, how have... Uh, capital city house performed compared to units around the nation in, in terms of growth over the last 20 odd years then Peter? Right so those people who are fortunate enough to be watching and listening to this you'll see the slides so I won't go through all the numbers but basically in every capital city except one houses outperform units over the last 19 years and I reckon if you were to go back 99 years you'd probably find the same thing the only place that where units outperform was Darwin. And when I delved deep into the research, that was because there were a lot of new units built in Darwin. And the new units include developers' profit. Uh, and you're only going to get that once. And so, and often what you'll find is when those, what used to be new units are sold the first time, it's pretty hard to sell them for at least what you paid for them. Generally, you sell them for less. So again, you know, it just reinforces that. So far as capital growth is concerned, land is important, which therefore means houses should have generally better capital growth than units. Yeah, perfectly said. Well, uh, to, to sort of whet our appetites a little bit, what, what are some of the highest performing suburbs within the capitals that you looked at? Yeah, look, so we start with our hometown, Adelaide. And again, we're looking at uh, close to the city. So we've got Kensington. So Adelaide in that uh, almost 15 year period, it increased 90%. And so for my predictions to be right, the suburbs had to do better than 90%. Well, Kensington did 160%. Uh, we've got Port Nalunga South right on the beach at 127%. Torrensville at 140%. So again, that theme, close to the city, close to the sea. Uh, Brisbane was actually my 
that's where my methodology worked best because in that almost 15-year time period, Brisbane uh, median house price increased 76%, but the suburbs that I selected did 120%. And, you know, that's huge. And we got, again, you know, the, for those of you that know Brisbane, I'm sure you'll know these suburbs. So uh, Norman Park, close to the city, 158%. Uh, Brighton, by the water, 150%. Sandgate, by the water, 165%. Um, Woolongabba, just across the river from the city, 151%. So again, you know, shining through. Canberra was only a couple of suburbs. Canberra did 113%. The, uh, I picked two suburbs. Braddon, there wasn't enough houses to come up with reliable data. Yep. Uh, Narrabunda was the other suburb, which did 111%. So strictly speaking, didn't outperform like I said it would, but yep. pretty close. Darwin, I picked two suburbs, Milner and Rapid Creek. They both did above the 43% that Darwin did. Hobart, I picked three suburbs, Glebe, North Hobart and South Hobart. Not enough house data in Glebe to come up with some reliable stats. So Hobart did 140% in that time, um, which is pretty good, more than double. So just, just remember, 100% means it doubles, right? So yes. much more than double. North Hobart did 207%, which is more than tripled. South Hobart did 130%, not the 140 that I was hoping for. Melbourne, some really good suburbs. So we're looking at uh, Carrum by the sea, 157%. Yeah. Brunswick and Brunswick East, 149% and 158% uh, respectively. Braybrook, which is uh, really going through that urban renewal gentrification, 187% almost tripled when Melbourne did 127%. Incredible. Sydney, there are some phenomenal results here, Bushy. I mean, Sydney itself did 163%. But if I can just cherry pick the ones that did over 200%, which is tripled in value. So just to put it in simple English, if you would bought a house in these suburbs, on average, they tripled in value in less than 15 years. So we've got Darlington at 222%. Cogra at 207%. Marrickville, that's where our Prime Minister lives, smart man, 233%. His property went up in value. Uh, and San Susi, a lovely little uh, waterside suburb that I love, uh, 195%. And Ultimi, really close to the, to the, uh, the city, 205%. So if you were in Sydney at that time, you did very well. But... Along with the good news comes the bad news, Bushing. <laughs> Perth was disastrous. So Perth, what is that? I mean, on both fronts, Perth only did 23% in that time period. Sydney, 163%. So significant difference. But and on, and on average, my suburbs that I picked only did 19%. So they did not outperform. And for a, I can see that for a couple of reasons. Most of my suburbs in Perth were by the sea. Yep. So to me, that reinforced, yes, being by the sea is important, but being close to the city is even more important. And, and, the, and the suburbs that did outperform were close to the city. So Perth, remember, 23%. East Victoria Park, 37%. Carlisle, close to the city, 33%. Morley, 27%. And Victoria Park, which was the best performer at 41%. So again, close to the city has shown 
that that's where you're going to do some good capital growth. Um, so, yeah, look, I am sorry for those people in Western Australia who may have read my book and, and bought in my suburbs. I mean, on average, it didn't do too bad compared to Perth. But, geez, if I've written a book about which city to, to invest in, that's a big difference, 163% to 23. Mind you, what I love about what you've just shared is, the, is again, the, the honesty with which you presented the information. And, and yes, okay, uh, Perth being a, pretty much a, a one-industry town with a it very is. strong resources focus uh, might not have performed over that that particular fifteen years, but if we if we jump forward to to now and then the last couple of years, given it's coming off such a low base, uh, it's time in the in the sun is about to occur. And as you probably know better than I, the the WA government's done a great job at diversifying the the industry base, particularly around Perth and the and the Southwest Corridor. Uh, so uh, while it, it may not have uh, had jumped to Sydney's standard uh, during that period, it's it's well on its way now to uh, starting to perform very well. So uh, it's the it's the old saying: it's how long you're in the market that's going to yeah. juice the fruit. So, uh, but but well, uh, and that, that time period, two thousand and eight, doesn't include when Perth property prices were going nuts, two thousand and five, two thousand and six, two thousand. If you go back to the ABS. I mean, I can't, I'm not one of those blacks that can do two things at once. I can only talk to you, Bushy. I can't go and check the ABS in the meantime. But you check out the ABS stats and you see how, per, like, it would have been, it went close to 50% in one year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. There are a lot of ups and downs, but, you know, and, you know, I've done some other research, which I, I talked about at the at the PIPA conference. Yep. It's time in the market, not timing, all right? You do your research, you have faith in your in what you in your judgment, and just buy buy you know the right type of property in the right street in the right suburb in the right city. You just sit on it because if you're going to buy and sell, buy and sell, a lot of your money goes in transaction costs and capital gains tax. After this break, Peter returns with Richie to run through the quantitative science of suburb selection. What key outperforming indicators does Peter focus on? Find out after this break. Property deductions can save you thousands of dollars each year. To make sure you maximise deductions, you need to work with the most experienced quantity surveyor in the country. BMT Tax Depreciation is the leading specialist in the industry. They've completed over 700,000 tax deduction schedules for residential investment and commercial properties Australia-wide. BMT guarantee to find double your fee in the first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation-free quote. Realty Talk exclusive to the Property Hub. I want to turn now to the more the quantitative uh, uh, science of suburb selection and get you to give us a rundown on what you believe are the key outperforming indicators that uh, you focus on. Yeah, so as I said earlier in the intro, we, I did quantitative research based on numbers and qualitative research. So quantitative research involved looking at the ABS, in particular demographic stats. So basically the question I ask, are the following indicators outperforming the state average? So is median weekly household income in that particular suburb increasing at a faster rate than the state average? What about the people that have bachelor degrees or above, which is very highly correlated to income? Yes. As is the next one, which is occupations, professionals and managers. Is the percentage of pressure professionals and managers increasing at a faster rate? 
So those three are all related to income because it's really the people with the money that drive property prices. Yep. Uh, tenure type, ideally we want uh, more owner-occupiers, whether that they got a mortgage or whether they paid it off, rather than renters. Uh, and to me, one of the, the most important uh, demographic factors is place of usual residence five years ago. So if we are having wealthier people moving into an area, that's where property prices go up. It's not like the people that live in the area suddenly got richer and now, you know, they're spending more money on upgrading their houses so they're worth more. It doesn't work like that. It, you're looking for the, the wealthier demographic moving in and the ABS has two stats there. One is people that lived at a different address one year ago and then people that have lived at a different address five years ago. I tend to look at five years ago because one year ago could be renters moving because they often, you know, move year by year yeah. and they're not really going to push property prices up but owner-occupiers do. And the other one that's not demographic-based is median house price. I like to see that prices are already going up, which lessens the risk. Rather than try and guess, oh, is this, is this suburb going to do well or not? If you've got, if you tick those boxes, plus prices are going up, all right, let's get in. And it's not too late because, in particular, if I picked it due to gentrification, gentrification takes 20 to 30 years. Yeah. So if you got in year two or year three, mate, you've still got 27 or 28 years to go. Exactly, and, and I, I think you've you've uh, focused in on one that very few people would uh, even be aware of, and that you know that place of usual uh, residence five years ago. Uh, looking at the changes that and the and the shift of income that that's going to put pr price pressure on on properties in the area. That's, that's a uh, that's one that I haven't heard anyone else talk about, Peter. So uh, I love the way you've sort of niched into that. But let's switch now across to the other side and and look at. Uh, some of the additional qualitative data that you consider as early indicators of, of gentrification that you've touched on. Yeah, so so the title of my presentation at the Pippa Conference was the art, it's both an art and a science. So yes. the, the quantitative stuff is the science. Yep. Like it's all numbers based and formula and stuff like that. Yep. But the qualitative stuff is more subjective, more opinion. And one thing that I'm really keen on is having a look at gentrification so gentrification is the process where a blue collar suburb turns into a blue ribbon suburb so it's like you know in brisbane west end in adelaide norwood and unley and st peter's and henley beach in sydney paddington and balmain in melbourne uh suburbs like richmond and st kilda is also going through that almost finished that gentrification process yeah so um, that, that's not to say that all of my suburbs are based on gentrification, but that's like another kicker. Like if that's happening as well, it's pretty hard to go wrong if all these other demographic factors you've ticked the box and this is happening. So basically gentrification um, was first observed at 60 years ago in London yeah. where the more affluent and educated class were, were buying and renovating Georgian and Victorian terraces in the west end of London, which wasn't so flash back then. Yep. And two of the key property, people and place elements that are globally common, not just Australia, yep. include a high proportion of character, as we call them in South Australia, or period style, as they call them in the eastern states, yep. buildings and homes. A wealthier demographic moves into the area and the suburbs need to be close to the city 
or close to the close to water. So maybe a river is okay, but generally close to the sea. Um, and so when you factor those sorts of things in, I look at property. You know, it is in the area, are the gardens neat and tidy? Is housing well kept and owners are willing to spend money on major renovations? Yep. Or are the, the front yards of houses full of car wrecks and old lounges? <laughs> you know, I, I probably wouldn't be buying in an area where there's lots of car wrecks and old lounges in the front yard. <laughs> um, the people, are there many young children and newly built childcare centres, which again shows us a younger, wealthier demographic moving in with well-dressed parents pushing prams, or is it an area with graffiti, vandalised bus shelters, big you know, uh, burnout tyre marks on the road? Um, are there hipster residents? Sorry for all the hipsters reading this. I'm not having a go at you, but this is just something that I've observed. Yeah. Are there hipster residents riding around on vintage bikes? If it's a steel-framed bike, you are probably in a gentrifying suburb. If it's a fixie, which means it's only got one gear, then you are definitely in a gentrifying suburb. And the other place indicators that I look at, like cars are a reflection of the people that live in the area. What sort of cars are people driving? I mean, big, big black BMWs and Mercs and Audis, it's already a wealthy area. Yeah. But the, the smaller black BMWs and Audis and Lexus, then we've got some aspiring people moving in. So that gives us you know, hope that that area is going to improve in value. Uh, sounds, you don't want to be too close to a, a factories or a main road. Um, other little quirky things, is there art appearing on electricity poles and public buildings? Gin distilleries, craft breweries, hot yoga studios, these are classic signs of an up-and-coming suburb and in particular an area uh, gentrifying because you can imagine, like gin is quite expensive, craft beer is quite expensive, as is going to yoga. So, you know, they're not going to succeed really well in a blue-collar area. But as the blue-collar area changes and wealthier people move in, then, yes, they're happy to pay 15 bucks for a shot of gin or, you know, 12 bucks for a glass of craft beer or 25 bucks for a yoga session. So these are the sorts of things that help me uh, select the top suburbs that people should be investing in. And, and, and beautifully said, because uh, you're only going to be able to pick those things up if you're getting down and dirty in the actual locations to be able to, to see those uh, little bitty details that, that are giving you a really good indication of, of where things are going. Uh, what about other qualitative indicators that you take notice of then, Peter? Yeah, so, um, we're, look so if we're looking at uh, uh, property. Uh, we're looking at not just the homes being upgraded, but the commercial buildings. Yep. Uh, uh, if we're looking at place, there's public seating available. The roads are being fixed up. The footpaths are being fixed up. Uh, generally, I mean, if you walk into an area and if you know what you're looking for, you know, you can spot it. Communal gardens, like often we'll have a strip of lawn out the front of our house, right? So there'll be the footpath, strip of lawn and the road. But often in these up and coming areas where there's a great sense of community, You'll have a garden, not just a flower garden, but maybe even a veggie garden. You know, these are the sorts of things to be looking at. And, look, and there's no guarantees here. Like, like I said at the conference, you know, is my methodology a sure bet you're going to make money? No, because I didn't get 100%. But is it a pretty safe bet? I think it is. Absolutely. Talk to us, I, I remember you talking at length about uh, 
uh, you look at cafes in the way. Yeah. <laughs> give us a give us a bit of a rundown on that one. Yeah, sure. Not, so, not, is the cafe, cafe, so you walk into the cafe. All right. Is the cafe uh, is the coffee served in an area up and coming? So, do they have um, coconut milk, oat milk, rice milk? Whoever thought you'd get milk out of rice, but there you go. And their tea offerings are they green, jasmine, chamomile? Um, and when you go and and uh, have a coffee there, no two tables or two chairs are alike. And the cup and the saucer are not alike. And the chair, you swear that you used to sit on that chair at your grandmother's house. <laughs> um, or you go to the pub and on a Sunday afternoon, like there's no sport on the TV. Uh, there's no, you can't hear the ting, ting, ting of pokies, but you can hear a jazz band in the courtyard. And the only beers that you can buy at, that are on tap are craft beers. Um and also walking in the main street. You know, if there's lots of for lease and for sale signs, that's not the sign of a healthy economy. But in a gentrifying area, what you might find is older style buildings, but new and up and coming businesses. Because yes. once you get more and more of those new and up and coming businesses, then the money is spent on the building. Um, so you might find in an old building, there might be somebody selling really expensive clothes. Whereas before it used to be a $2 shop. Yes. But over time, the building will also be um, upgraded. So look, you know, Bushy, there's lots of things to look for. You just got to know what you are looking for. Yeah. And, and what it means too, when you do mm. see it, uh, which you've described beautifully there. So uh, in terms of uh, quantifying some of the exercise, and, and again, you've touched on this a little bit earlier, where and how do you find the main data that supports your investigations, Peter? Right, so generally it'll be the ABS stats. So those people that look at ABS, they probably go to the census and look up quick stats, which is fine. But some of the other, what I call fine-grained data, where you get more detail, then you have to look uh, somewhere else, something called community profiles. And again, for those people that are looking at the, uh, listening and watching this, you'll see on the slides, some of the tabs that I've highlighted where you can find this information. And and so basically you're looking at, for example, 2011, 2016 and 2021 data. Yep. So if you can get at least three sets of data, that's 10 years worth. That's pretty good. Yep. But, you know, you don't expect to find all the data in the same tab. So, for example, place of usual residence five years ago in 2011 is in tab B39. Don't go looking for it in B39 in 2016. I don't know why they don't make it easier, the ABS. <laughs> so that's in, that's in G42. And then you're looking for it in 2021. It's in G45. But anyway, if you if you can have a look at the ABS data um, and have a poke around, you, you'll be able to find it. Um, and, and, it's, and some people may think, oh, that's too hard. You're investing hundreds of thousands of dollars here. I mean, either you pay somebody else to do the research for you that you trust, or at least do some of it yourself. Um, and yeah, all right. And and so you know, you may not you may not like stats because a lot of people that did stats is probably their worst subject at uni, which is my worst subject at uni. Even though <laughs> I mean, I don't teach stats. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, to do some of the qualitative stuff, you know, go and have a look at the suburb. Yeah. Speak. Look, one thing I did when I was writing the book was I I would ring up the police and say. I'm looking to buy a property in the area. 
can you let me know which areas that I should be avoiding? Uh, and, you know, look, walking around, you may not see that. There are probably some signs, but you've got to be really astute. But, you know, talking to police, talking to the local shop owners is just so valuable to give you an idea of what's happening in the area. Absolutely. I remember years ago, Peter, uh, after the GFC, uh, we jumped on a plane and went to the States. And one of the key things we looked for when we were looking at the area, we'd make sure we're in the area uh, just as it got dark. Uh, oh, yes. Good one. Because that's when you really saw... Uh, what the area is like because an area could look quite good during the day yeah because everyone's uh, at work or out and about but come home at night different story absolutely right so you know and, and again i think uh, you touched on a really good point there if if you're investing hundreds of thousands of dollars with an intention of making hundreds of thousands of dollars if you have to look under different tabs to find the the information across the years that's going to separate the sheep from the goats in in relation to those that are really serious about uh, informing themselves before they put their hard, hard-earned cash in. Stay with us. More to come. When we return, Bushy asks Peter for his step-by-step approach to selecting the top up-and-coming suburbs. He does that by using a case study. Back at a moment with Peter and Bushy. Hi. Just before we go back to the show, uh, I want to spend a few seconds and tell you about a book that was sent to me that's now become my go-to reference when I'm looking for inspiration about property investment. You know, sometimes it's not about knowing all the answers. It's certainly more important to know what questions to ask. This book by Rasti uh, is called The Property Wealth Blueprint. And it's one that you don't read just once and then put it away. It stays out as a reference. It's a book that you go back to time and time again, as I do, because it's packed with personal experience and with great examples of how to get property investment right. Uh, It's very frank. It's to the point. And as you can see here, uh, I've needed to bookmark several points. And I can tell you that it's a constant companion on my desk here. The remarkable thing is that it's absolutely free on Rasty's website, getrare.com.au. Get Rare. It's a gateway to a richer life. The website there for you again, getrare.com.au. So get this book, get it for yourself. So to bring all this together then, Peter, can you sort of take us through a case study to demonstrate your step-by-step approach to selecting the top up-and-coming suburbs then? Yeah, so there were seven steps that I used. So, and and people can do this themselves. Because remember, I wrote the book 15 years ago. I'm not planning on writing another one. So if you want to update it, You'll have to do your own research. So you, you look for suburbs close to the city and, the, and on the coast. Yeah. Then you find the cheaper suburbs within that selection. Keeping in mind, cheaper doesn't necessarily mean undervalued. Yeah. Are the cheaper suburbs adjacent to the more expensive suburbs? Are the cheaper suburbs similar in nature to the more expensive suburbs, in particular streetscape and housing style? So you can't say, well, here's an expensive suburb and here's a cheap suburb which is full of factories next door. Well, unless the factories are going to move, it's always going to be cheap. So that, that, that's one illustration. Are the same types of houses cheaper in the prospective up-and-coming suburb? Does the other quantitative data support this price and property data? And does the qualitative data support your price, property, and quantitative data? So seven, I wouldn't say simple steps, but seven straightforward steps that do require a bit of work, especially if you're looking at the quantitative data that yeah. can help you. 
Yeah. And I, I put that together and used it as a case study and I, and I selected a uh, suburb in Adelaide called Underdale. Yep. Now, Underdale is in the western suburbs of Adelaide, so it's between the city and the sea. Uh, it's uh, sandwiched in between. Uh, so if we look at the steps here, so I looked at the suburbs close to the city and Underdale was one of them. Underdale, step number two, find the cheaper suburb. Underdale was one of those. Are the cheaper suburbs adjacent the more expensive suburbs? Yes, because uh, Underdale is sandwiched in between Torrensville and Lockley. So Underdale's median house price, eight thirty-five thousand. dollars Torrensville, nine sixty-two thousand. dollars not a lot more, but Lockley's, $1.11 mil. So there you've got a cheaper suburb sandwiched in between two more expensive suburbs. Yep. Um, are the same types of houses cheaper in the prospective up-and-coming suburb? And, again, those people are lucky enough to view it. And, look, if you're not viewing it, I've said it enough times, you should get on the YouTube channel or on the website and check out these slides because I picked three comparable properties, so three in Torrensville and three very similar properties in Underdale. And uh, you could see that the, the houses... So the same house was cheaper in Underdale than Torrensville. So what's happening is people would love to live in Lockleys, but they can't afford the 1.1 mil. Yeah. They can't afford Torrensville at 962, but maybe they can afford Underdale at 835, which is about $250,000 cheaper than Lockleys. And you're basically, because it's next door, you're basically the same distance to the city and the same distance to the sea. And then I also looked at... Uh, the quantitative data, so the ABS data. So, you know, was the median weekly household income in Underdale growing at a faster rate than the state? Yes. Was the number of people with bachelor degrees or more growing faster than the state? Yes. Professionals and managers percentage was increasing faster than the state. Uh, the percentage of people that own their own house outright with a mortgage was increasing faster than the state. Very importantly, the place of usual residence five years ago. There were more, there were different, there was a high percentage of different people living in Underdale than, than the state, and the median price was already increasing. Just a couple of, not, not disclaimers, but a couple of things to watch out for. Because Underdale is so close to the city, I had a look at uh, the Ed Educational Institute that were people were attending. Because if you've got a high proportion of students, as we tend to have in our suburbs that are close to the city, that can skew the data. Yes, we've got a high proportion of students and a high and a high number of people with bachelor degrees because they're doing masters, but it doesn't earn it doesn't mean that they earn a ton of money because they're only students. Yeah. So uh, that's something to watch out for. So basically, look, you know, in a nutshell, I looked at the quantitative data on the computer. I looked at the qualitative data you know, drove around the streets and picked uh, houses that were alike in the more expensive suburb, Torrensville, and compared to, to the, the undervalued suburb, Underdale. And, you know, in my opinion, you know, Underdale is a great suburb to invest in. You know, we're talking long-term here. You'd leave your, your money there for 5, 10, 15 years, ideally, and you should do better than the Adelaide average. Based on my research, and don't forget, Bushy, I think we forgot to mention, I'm a man that puts his money where his mouth is. Exactly. So I, 
So I actually invest in property as well, and I do take my own advice. And I own investment properties in Port Nalunga and Port Nalunga South. I own a property in Torrensville. So, you know, I do take my own advice. So, again, you know, it's not a sure bet, but f please find me a sure bet, and I'll be happy to bet on it on Saturday at the races. But I don't think you're going to do that. Um, but I think, you know, the more research you do, the the more risk you take out of it, which is really important because you may only buy one investment property and it's, and it's going to be the, the most money you spend in any, on any one occasion. Please, please do some research. Please. Yeah, absolutely, Kiana. And I... I think you, you picked a really good example uh, with, with Undervale and being a fellow Adelaidean, uh, you know, I, I used to play uh, field hockey down at the Adelaide CAE on the... Well, uh, I used to go to Underdale High School. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> oh, very and, well. <laughs> and, and, I mean, if you look at what's happened there with the, with the closure of the Adelaide CAE and, and, you know, developers have got in there and they've seized the opportunity with residential to redevelop uh, some of those areas, particularly along the the Torrens, uh, yeah, the linear park here is fantastic. Yeah. Just just a beautiful amenity. So uh, I think that sort of a really great shining example of bringing together all of that uh, the art and the science as as you've managed to to tease that together uh, to and get a number of different points reinforcing the same uh, message really. Uh, that uh, there's plenty of opportunity in that space. So uh, for those that are listening and watching. Uh, take heed of those seven steps and all of the other uh, data that uh, Peter's shared with us. And if you combine those, then uh, as you well said, Peter, you're de-risking the exercise and giving yourself the best possible chance. So uh, sort of bring that all to a head then, what are your final words in relation to uh, selecting top growth suburbs then, Peter? So look, I spent you know, a good portion of my career as an educator focusing on suburbs maybe I should have spent it on cities instead. Remember that comparison? Perth, 23%. Sydney, 163%. But if you if you want to select, if you want to try and select which city you should be investing in, you need to be looking at macroeconomic data, not property economic data. So some of the macroeconomic, one of my students did a, a wonderful paper on uh, factors to look for if uh, for selecting cities for investing in property. Yeah. Um, so money supply was particularly important to Sydney. Household consumption uh, for Brisbane and in Adelaide, Perth and Melbourne, it was state final demand. So basically what, what my students said was that these factors were correlated. So one goes up, so does the other. Does, so it doesn't mean that one causes the other. You could probably imply that, a bit dangerous, but you could imply that, but certainly they are not leading indicators. Because ideally, we're looking for leading indicators. And the, and the quantitative stats that I gave you, especially the, those that relate to gentrification, are leading indicators. So you can, if it's happening, excellent. And they go by there and, all right, it might be one or two or three or five years into it, but you've still got, you know, 25 or more years to go of that um, upswing in prices. So, look, there's a... Look, you know, you don't need to be a rocket science to in, invest in property, but you do need some science, all right? You you do need to do some research. Yeah, it's uh, reinforced time and time again. Uh, and and as, you, as you've said, if you're not prepared or don't have the time to do the research yourself, find someone that you trust that's got a proven track record 
of, of doing the research on the key key uh, data points uh, and the qualitative uh, uh, walk the neighbourhood data, boots on the ground stuff that's that's going to bring it all together. So look. Uh, Thanks again for all of these really informative and timely insights, uh, Peter. Uh, your, you know, the book might have been written uh, fifteen odd years ago, but the principles that you've applied are, are I think, more applicable now, given that we've gone through a, a major growth curve. That's sort of, uh, you know, the tides flooded all property ships. Uh, those leading indicators that you're talking about are going to be more important than ever in terms of determining ongoing growth, given that a lot of areas that have had capital growth brought forward may well flatline for an extended period of time without those uh, ongoing drivers to uh, get behind it. So uh, I really want to thank you for giving that perfect balance between that intuitive art and the the data science of superior location and property selection, which is like no other, Peter. And you provide yet another really good example of the benefits of working with like-minded independent professionals that PIPA or the Property Investment Professional of Australia represents. So for those listening, if you want to engage someone or work with someone who who takes Peter's approach to to property from that independent professional perspective, jump on pippa.asn.au. And uh, in closing, Peter, I really want to thank you again and, and let's keep the conversation going. Thank you, Bushy. Always a pleasure to do a podcast with a fellow Adelaidean because there's not many of us. Property, the property industry is generally over in the eastern states, so it, it's wonderful to do stuff with you. And I, I didn't give Adelaide a plug. You know, and I'll ask you this question, Bushy. You could probably guess. Out of the, the last twenty years, right? Hobart was the best performing capital city. We're talking about cities rather than suburbs. You know which was after Hobart? Good on Adelaide, that. mate. Absolutely. So we did all right, didn't we? We did. We, we used to all be the... the stuff in the newspapers and on the net. It's all about Sydney house prices and Melbourne house prices. Nobody really cares about us, but we're doing all right. Well, I'll tell you what, I used to refer to us as the Stephen Bradbury of, of property. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, but I'll tell you what, in the last couple of years, we've, we've shot to the front of the line. I'm outperformed. Since COVID, since 20, June 2020, we have far outperformed anybody. Yeah. Absolutely. No, well, uh, always great to rub shoulders, mate. Uh, we should be catching up for coffee ourselves and checking I think we should. You need to come to the city. I know you live down there on the in Coromandel Valley, is that right? Clarendon. Clarendon. Clarendon, sorry. <laughs> next time you're in town, give us a I'll shout you a coffee at the uni. They and make we'll... really good coffee there. Even better, they're lemon muffins. There you go. And I'll... I don't know if you're a sweet tooth, but I'll shout you a lemon muffin. I am, mate. And, and uh, let's make sure they've got plenty of those different milks on the on the show. <laughs> Okay, thanks again. We'll catch up with you soon, mate. Bye for now. Thanks, waiting. Property depreciation is the natural wear and tear of a building and its assets. Property investors can claim depreciation as a tax deduction each financial year. Depreciation is a non-cash deduction. This means you don't need to spend any money in order to claim it. On average, BMT tax depreciation find residential investors almost $9,000 in first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation free quote. Subscribe now to Realty Talk. It's out every week. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. A big thanks to Peter and Bushy for a really great show full of a lot of information. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of Realty Talk or Bushy's Get Invested podcast both delivered to you each and every week. And you can do that by subscribing to the Property Hub now on your favourite podcast player or wherever you're listening to or watching this show. Thanks to our supporters and content partners, realty.com.au, 
BMT tax depreciation, know-how property finance, get rare property and Apiro marketing. I'm Kevin Turner and on behalf of Bushy and the Property Hub team, we look forward to seeing you again next week.